All right, 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's, let's uh, open with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord, as we go to your word right now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Pray less of me and more of you. The words of man are a waste of time, but the word of God transforms lives. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. I thank you for those that are watching on live stream. I minister to every heart. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. All right, Kings, as we know, that it began with, you know, it ended, first Kings ended with King David's death. And we saw King Solomon. And because of King Solomon's behavior, uh, sadly, Israel was torn in two. No longer was his family going to rule over them both. So the two southern tribes are Judah and the 10 tribes to the north are called Israel. Now we also know that as we've been looking at the kings all the way from first kings and, all, and now that all the kings in the northern kingdom have been evil, all of them, 100%. And it's so easy just to get used to that. But remember, they're the kings over Israel, God's chosen people. The people that God delivered out of bondage in Egypt, the one who brought them into the land of promise, the one who the, God the Father spoke to them from Mount Sinai. The word of God was delivered to them through the hands of Moses. And here they are. They are so far away from God. And King Ahab's, his, one of his second son is now the king. His name is Jehoram. And he's the king over Israel. And what's happening is that they are all worshiping false idols without restraint, um, Baal worship and the worship Asheroth and other false gods. And they have turned their back completely on the true and living God. Now in the midst of all of that, there's a remnant. And that remnant uh, was people like Elijah and now Elisha, who God uses. And we know there are other people that know the Lord and are walking with God, but they're outnumbered. So it sounds like California, amen. And so God has us here to be salt and light and, and we need to take these applications of the things that we see and how they respond in a time when the nation is so wicked and so far away from God. And we see how God responds. And we're going to see some of that tonight. If you remember last week, we looked at Naaman. He was a leper, if you guys remember that. And he got word from a girl who was captured. She was an Israel, Israelite uh, young woman. And she was captured and was serving Naaman's wife. And Naaman had leprosy. And he was, he was basically the general for Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And when he heard that he might be able to be healed, he dropped everything and went to the king. And the king gave him the equivalent of about $4 million in today's money in gold and silver. And he brought it and was willing to let it all go if he could get rid of the leprosy. And we know that God chose to heal him. And I love how he used Elisha, but Elisha never even left his house because Elisha did not want to take the credit. He wanted God to get the glory. So he sent out his messenger, Gehazi, to tell him, go, go rent seven times in the Jordan and your leprosy will be gone. And if you'll remember, Naaman didn't like that. He thought it was too easy. He thought he was looking for some great task he'd have to fulfill. And a lot of times people are that way with the gospel. You mean I just have to give my life, I just have to surrender my life to the Lord, I have to confess him, not just as Savior, but as Lord. You mean I just have to repent, turn around and, and cry out to him and make him God and I'm going to heaven, I'm a new creation. And cry. Oh, that's too easy. 
Don't I have to crawl on glass to Mecca? Don't I have to, you know, climb some high mountain out in the middle of nowhere and chant for a while? I mean, don't I have to fast 500 days? What do I have to do? And it seems so simple to them. Well, Naaman at first wasn't going to do it. And praise God for some of his servants who said, if he'd asked you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? Well, yeah, so go do it. And the seventh time he came up, we know that his leprosy was gone. And he ran back to tell Gehazi and to tell Elisha to thank them that he'd been forgiven and to try to give them a gift. And if you'll recall, Elisha wanted no part of it. See, Elisha wasn't doing anything for his own wealth or his own fame. He was doing it all for the glory of God. And the Bible, you know, Chuck used to always teach us at every senior pastor's conference, one of the messages would basically be, touch not the wine, touch not the women, touch not the money, touch not the glory. Because those are the areas that where God is using you that you can fall. Now, the sad part is, and we'll get into tonight's chapter, is there was a contrast because Gehazi, when he heard that Elisha sent Naaman away with his $4 million and didn't take any of it, he ran out behind him. And he caught up to him and brought two guys along to pretend that they needed help and said, hey, we got two new guys in the, son, the prophet school who need some help. Could you give them some clothes and you know, a talent of silver. He gave him two talents of silver and some clothes. And then he came back and trying to hide stuff from Elisha is not a good idea because God talks to that guy. Amen. And so what happens is he called him out. Where have you been? And he lied. Here's what's interesting. Naaman came humbly crying out to God and his leprosy was taken away. And a man of, of, of a supposed man of God who is serving with Elisha chases after money. And what did God give him in the end? What did he have? He got leprosy. See, when we chase how he's chasing after the world and, and leprosy in the Bible, it's really kind of a, type, a picture of sin because what does it do? It just eats away at us and slowly kills us. And that's what sin does. And that brings us to chapter six. And I tell the message tonight, God is watching. And we're going to see, isn't it good to know that God's eyes are always on you? Well, I, I guess it's good most of the time. <laughs> there are times when you hope God's not watching. And I believe that we should be reminded every day that the Lord is always watching. And so everything we do and whatever we choose to participate in, the Lord is there and his eyes are upon us and he loves us. We're going to go look at six points tonight. Let's go through them quickly. God is watching. God shows up in powerful ways as we faithfully serve him. God does what only he can do and leaves part of it to us. We've been seeing this repeatedly throughout Kings when with Elijah and Elisha, they would God would speak through them or God would do something miraculous, but it always required the participation of the person who was being ministered to. Now, God doesn't need our participation, but he wants us to do more than just sit back and watch him work. Amen. And so what happens is God will do the miraculous part that we can't do, but he'll leave an opportunity for us to do something so that we can participate. So in tonight's text, we're going to see God make iron swim. I love it. Iron does not swim, iron sinks. But when God's in control, he can do anything he wants, amen? And we're gonna see him make iron swim tonight. And we're gonna see the, that, he, that the man whose acts 
your head falls in the water, still has to reach over and pick it up. So God makes it float. He just needs to pick it up. God will do, give us opportunities to be used for his kingdom. He gets all the glory. He doesn't need us. We need him. But then when he does give us those opportunities, may we reach out. Number two, God is always watching. Nothing is hidden from him. May we live every moment knowing he's watching. Number three, the angel of the Lord encounters all around those who fear him and he delivers them. There are three stories in tonight's chapter that you've probably heard before and didn't know they were all in the same chapter. But one of them we're going to see tonight is where Elisha and his servant are outnumbered by Ben-Hadad's army. They've got chariots and horses. I know it's a, I know it's a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a spoiler alert right now, okay? Because <laughs> it's coming. Remember, I always say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, then I tell you what I told you, amen? So I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you, so it's, it's okay to give it away a little bit. But what's amazing is, is this army is around them, and his right-hand guy, his new servant who took Gehazi's place, his name's on the text, says, we're outnumbered. We're going to get crushed. Look at the size of this army. I love that he sits back and says, Lord, just open his eyes. When he opens his eyes, what does he see? Chariots of fire and an angelic host surrounding the enemy. Guys, we need to remember that if God is for us, who can be against us? And you plus God is a majority and God is greater than anything that this world can dish out. Amen. And we can trust in the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God and the graciousness of God and the power of our God. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. He, he opened the high eyes of that man and he was blown away. Uh, not only is does the angel of the Lord encamp all around us, God is in control. And he's even in control over our enemies. You know, our enemies can't do anything, including Satan, unless God allows it. You know that, right? Devil can't do anything unless God, God allows it. If God doesn't approve it, it's not going to happen. And so is there's, there's peace in knowing that while the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, he could only touch Job because God allowed it. So God is in control. We're going to see that in tonight's text. And then when we turn our backs on God, there's no level of depravity that is beyond us. And we'll see that sin has consequences. Now, this is what Israel has been doing and they've been doing it for a very long time. And we're going to see just how depraved they have become. It's really sad. This is one of the harshest parts of the Bible. When you read what they start doing in their depravity, and you know what? I just feel like I look around our, our world right now, and we are so far away from, even when I was a uh, you know, in, in high school, it's amazing how far away we've gotten in you know, 40 years. And, and it's just amazing how we're getting more and more desensitized to sin. And as we get, de you know, as we, as we watch sin and we get desensitized to it, and before you know it, we act like it's normal and it's not a problem. Just remember the culture doesn't decide what the norm is. The word of God does. The word of God is the, the standard for the way that we live and what we believe. And then finally, when confronted with sin, we can do one of three things, make excuses, accuse others, or repent. Let's begin there in verse one of second Kings chapter six. And it says, and the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, see now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered and said, go. Now here's what's encouraging about these two verses. As depraved and as wicked as Israel was, the seminary, if you will, the school for the sons of the prophets is growing. 
which means even though the land itself had turned its back on God, there were more and more people who were surrendering their lives to the Lord in service to the Lord. So guys, we must never be so consumed with how evil the world is and we need to recognize that God is still on the move, God is still in control, and people are still getting saved. Can I get an amen to that? And we praise God for that. And so here, and I love how this was their heart, they're like, look, where we're having, you know, where we're studying in the schools of the prophets, where we're studying, it's, there's not enough room for us. Can we go build a bigger place? And they come to him and say, can we build a bigger place? They have vision for it. We want to have more room for more people to come. They don't just want to grow themselves. They want to see others grow. You know, guys, we shouldn't be satisfied that we're saved. We, want, we should want to see everybody come to know the Lord. Amen? The saddest thing we can do is go to heaven all by ourselves. So it's too small for us. And again, even in the midst of a rebellious and idolatrous generation, there were those who were responding to the call of God. Guys, that's why it's important that each of us just respond to what God calls us to do. Don't worry about anybody else. You just be faithful. Even if no one else is, you be faithful. That's an old song. What's it, what's it called? If the deacon doesn't go, don't bother me, right? You know that song I'm talking about? So now everybody that's, that nodded their head, you're old like me, okay? Because everybody else is going, what are you talking about, bro? Don't worry about anybody else as far as you make sure your own walk's where it needs to be. Then, then verse three, then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered and said, I will go. Elisha did not initiate or lead this work, but it would not have happened without his approval because he was the prophet. And I love that these young prophets are hungry to continue to grow in their faith and their understanding of the Lord. And they're willing to make personal effort to make room to grow. And it reminds me, you know, the church I pastor in Santa Cruz, we met in a gym for 10 years. And we, we started there with just a handful of people and it grew to where we were setting up chairs for people showing up at 5 a.m. It took four hours to set up for church. And we finally moved into a building after all those years. And when we moved in, the rent was going to be pretty expensive. And the way that we kept the rent down a little bit is we agreed to do our own improvements. So we basically got a shell. We had to build a sanctuary that seated 1,200 people. We built a cafe, a bookstore, uh, about, about, fi- about 12 classrooms for kids. And, we, and so what would happen is all these tradespeople and people that didn't even know the trades would go to work all day. And about 7 o'clock at night, We'd have full crews. We'd work till three or four in the morning. I'd try to get them to leave. They wouldn't go because they're doing it for the Lord. Amen? And do you know we, we built that entire place at about half the time a contractor said it would take because many hands make light labor. And when you're called and you're doing it for the Lord, it's a get to, not a have to. Amen? And it was a blessing. And it just reminds me of that as these guys are saying, let's go build a bigger place so we can have more people come, so more people can study and be prepared to be used by the Lord for his kingdom and for his glory. Verse four, so he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So they're building a new place. They go out to cut down trees. Now keep in mind, in the days of Israel, there was iron, but there wasn't a lot of it. And in a sense that you can't just like, we can go down to Home Depot and pick out which of the 5,000 pieces of tools that we want. And so to have a, you know, an iron ax, you know, it was something that, you know, came, came dearly. And so watch what happens. Verse five. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron ax head fell into the water and he cried out and said, alas, master, for it is borrowed. 
I borrowed it from somebody to use it for the Lord. And now I'm out here using it for the Lord. And either he hit the tree wrong or the head of the ax wasn't on right. And it fell into the water. And that usually means game over. Have you ever tried to find something at the beach that you lost in the ocean? God bless you. Nice try. <laughs> Amen. Just, just, and so here he is and his heart is broken. And I love that he's more concerned because it belongs to somebody else than it belongs to him when it belongs to him. I know that's how my wife and I, the house we live in now, we rented it for two years before we bought it. And when the owner would come by, he said, your wife keeps this place better than when I owned it. I, you know, this is way better than we lived here because her heart was always when something belongs to someone else, you want to take better care of it than when it's your own. Amen. If it's your own and you break it, oh, well, it's yours. Go buy another one. But when it belongs to somebody else, and here, this is something that no doubt was precious. He's over there serving the Lord, right? He's cutting down trees so they could build a place for God's people to worship. And in the midst of serving the Lord, uh-oh, he breaks the ax and it falls into the water. Now, again, it, it's not the end of the world, but he has a, a heart because he is a man of integrity and character, and his heart is, you know, concerned because here, you know, the son of the prophet weren't wealthy. So he had to go and borrow it from somebody else. And again, as he was using it for the Lord, as he was faithfully serving the Lord, the ax head fell into the water and it grieved him. Now watch what happens. So he said it was borrowed. By the way, he's very concerned about being a good steward. Verse six. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there and he made the iron float. I've never seen iron float. How about you? Now, what's amazing about this is people try to explain why he cut a stick and threw it in the water and anything that anybody says, they're going to have to be making it up to some degree because I have no idea why, but I do believe that it was an act of faith on his part. Maybe the Lord told him to throw a stick in the water. He threw a stick in the water. And so you can go home this afternoon, throw an ax head in your jacuzzi and throw 20 sticks in there. I promise you it's probably not going to float. Can I get an amen? But he's doing something in obedience to what the Lord has called him to do. And it's a miraculous work. And you know what it's going to do? This young man who was heartbroken because he had borrowed this and now he feels bad about the fact that he hadn't taken good care of it. Now, instead, he's going to be ministered to by the Lord, by he's going to witness firsthand a miraculous work. He gets to see the hand of God. See, if the ox didn't break, he wouldn't get to see it float. See, sometimes, guys, we have to go through trials and difficulty and have things in our life that are troubling before we get to see God show up and do a mighty work. Amen? See, count all joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials. So it doesn't say if you fall, it says when you fall. So as believers, you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or getting ready to go back into a trial. Amen? It's just part of life in this, in this world. We will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now, he could have just had the ax head pop out of the water and back on the, you know, back on the, on, on, on the ax, right? Just back onto the handle. But he didn't do that. And I love this. Look at verse 7. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So again, God did the miraculous, but he allows him to take part in what God is doing by doing what we can do. See, God loves, God chooses to use us. What's the last thing Jesus said as he ascended into heaven? Go therefore into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gave them the great commission. You know why? 
it's amazing to me, and God knows what he's doing, but God could just open up the sky and share the gospel with everybody all at once. And yet he chooses to use us. And he chooses to use us. He wants to, he does the supernatural part of people getting saved. We can't save anybody. Uh, people don't get saved because of our great argument or how eloquent we are. It's the drawing of the Holy Spirit. But he chooses to use us to be tools in his hands. He allows us to take part in what he's doing, just to be in a front row seat to see God at work. And that's exactly what happens to this young man. And watch what happens. So he reached out with his hand and he took it. I think he's actually glad it went in the water now, don't you? He's glad now that he went through that trial because it wasn't wasted. God can make iron swim. Just remember that the next time you're overwhelmed and you think there's something God can't do. Oh, this, is a, this person's too far from getting saved. God can't do that. Well, my finances are such a mess. God can't get me out of this hole. You know, my, my issues with my health are so heavy duty. There's no way God, and, and guys, we, we should never limit God. God is greater than anything, amen? And he can do great and awesome things. God does what only he can do. And he asks us to respond in faith to do our part. He leaves to us the part that we are able to do. And I think of it this way. I came to mind, the Bible says, there are any sick among you, call for the elders, anoint their heads with oil and pray. So when, when somebody's sick and we bring them up and we do that, and we, it's not the oil that brings healing. It's not the hands of the elders that bring healing. It's faithful obedience to do what God says to do as an act of faith, to say, Lord, you tell us to do this, so we're doing this as an act of faith, and Lord, we know only you can heal. And when God chooses to heal, he gets all the glory because it wasn't the hands of the people or the olive oil that was put on their head, but it was an act of faith and obedience to watch God do a mighty work, amen? So we do it because God commands us to, and we do it as an act of faith and obedience, and then we get to watch God work and we make sure we give God all the glory. Amen? We are simply tools in the hands of the master. God can do all things. He can make iron swim. We cannot. And again, you see that God used a prophet. And the prophet, God, through the words of the prophet, made iron swim. So point number one there. God shows up in powerful ways, even... When we, when we are faithfully serving him. So he was just faithfully serving the Lord and God showed up and maybe, I, we don't know what the story is with this, with this man. I don't like to speak into to silence in scripture, but God used it certainly to bless him. And do you think he might've told a few people about it? You think the rest of the school, the prophets might've heard about this, that, that iron was swimming? And what does that do? It increases everybody's faith. Boy, God's in this work. God's behind this. Boy, now we know that God wants us to build it. Look what God has done. What a blessing. Point number two, God is always watching. Look at verse eight. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel and he consulted with the servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Here's what happens. The king of Syria, the Syrians just will not leave Israel alone. 
If you've been here for the last several weeks, they just keep, they're just north of Israel and they just keep attacking and God keeps delivering Israel. And they even came together at one point to fight somebody. And, and Syria, Ben-Hadad just keeps coming after Israel. And you know why? They believe Israel is a sitting duck. Why? Because Israel's not walking with God. They know the God of Israel is powerful, but they know the king of Israel is a mess. And so because of that, they see them as sitting ducks and they keep continuing to attack them. Well, he's about to attack them and God speaks to Elisha. And even though the king of Israel is an idol worshiper, he still has some level of relationship now with Elisha, especially after he just healed the leper Naaman. And, you know, and again, he had been sent by Ben-Hadad, the Syrian, and they just healed his man and sent him back. And now they're attacking. Now, when this happens, as he's about to attack and he, got, he has his plan together, God tells Elisha what the plan is and Elisha goes and tells the king. And then the king shows up and warns everybody. And look at what it says in verse 11. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this. And he called his servants and said, will you not show me which of you is for the king of Israel? Look, there's got to be a spy in here somewhere. How come he keeps finding out everything we're going to do? Which one of you is a spy? I'm going to root you out. We're going to have a hanging this afternoon. Who did it? And watch what happens. I love this. Calls him out. And one of the servants, verse 12, said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Dude, you cannot hide from God and everything you say, Elisha knows it. Now, it's interesting to me that someone says it. I kind of wonder, we'll find out when we get to heaven. I wonder if it's Naaman. Amen. Naaman just got healed from leprosy from Elisha. And he's the general for Ben-Hadad in Syria. And it wouldn't surprise me. He said, dude, that Elisha dude, I've been around that guy. He knows what's going on. He, he hears you. Now, again, I might be an exaggeration. You're whispering to your wife in your bedroom and Elisha hears it all the way down in Israel. Now, again, who's the spy? Who's the... No, God is in control. And God hears. And God knows. And God is faithful. Amen? And nothing is hidden from God. And the same is true of us. God hears us. When we're at work, he sees us when we're going through a difficult time. He sees how we respond. Now, he loves us. We're his children. But those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. So he suspects there's a spy within the camp, leaking the plans to the enemy. And the truth is, it's not a spy in Syria teaching his plans to the king of Israel. It's a spirit-filled prophet in Israel that was hearing from the Lord and was warning the king. Now, when stuff like this happens... Now remember, Elisha, they just healed. He sent his guy off with leprosy. He came back without it. That ought to make you think, okay, that God might be real. Then he tells them everything you're talking about, he hears. This might be the point where you go, you know what? We need to find out who that God is and get on his side, amen? Why do we want to fight again? Look, we're not trying to get God on our side. We just need to get on God's side, Amen. Like when people say, God bless America. Now, how about America bless God? Yeah. Amen. We, we don't need to get him on our side. We need to get on his side. And he, you know, if we're, if we're walking with the Lord. And so how could Elisha have this kind of knowledge without planting bugs? God is watching. He's all knowing. He's all powerful. It says in Psalm 139, you know, my sitting down and my rising up, you understand my thought of far off. 
So those things that we think we're keeping from the Lord, we're not keeping anything from God. And if it's something we're struggling with, we should come humbly and broken before him and lay it at his feet. Amen? God, you already know what I'm struggling with. God, can you help me, please? I understand the importance, uh, again, of you know, being involved with privacy. Everybody's worried about privacy. But if you realize that God was looking over your shoulder every minute of the day, would it change how you act? The next time you're getting in a discussion with your wife, I know none of you would argue with your spouses, so you just had a discussion with your spouse. Just remember that the Lord's watching. Can I get an amen to that? And we need to honor God in the way we treat each other. May we live every moment, every day, knowing that God is watching and that nothing, absolutely nothing, is hidden from him. Point number three, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him, and he delivers them. Now, I love this. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. Now, does that sound like he's learning anything along the way here? He finds out that he knows everything he says because God's revealing it to him. He knows he's the one God used to heal his general of leprosy. And instead of surrendering, instead of crying out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and aligning himself with the God of Israel, instead, he says, go find out. He's talking about Elisha. Go find out where Elisha is and we're going to go get him. And isn't it amazing? Isn't this what the world does? When you're outside of God's will, and you're living contrary to what God has commanded you to do, and then someone loves you enough to point it out, instead of repenting, you get mad at the person who pointed it out. How dare you speak into my life that way? How dare you stand up for the truth? How dare you, how dare you say that my lifestyle is sinful? How dare you love me enough to tell me the truth? And that's what's happening here with Ben-Hadad. He, this is, every time that he sees God do a miracle, it's an opportunity to repent. Every time he sees God in, you know, making a mighty move like this, it's an opportunity to say, you know what? Baal's never done anything for me. Asherah's never done anything for me. I've been making sacrifices to them and I got nothing coming back. And I see that their God is doing awesome things. You know what? Maybe he is God and it should have been, hey, go send for Elisha so he can come up here and tell me how I can follow God. The God of Israel. Instead, he says, go find this guy. We're going to get him. It's in the Bible right there. Look what it says. He says, I may send and get him. It doesn't sound like he's inviting him over for dinner. He's going after him. And it says there, and he was told saying, surely he is in Dothan. Now, Dothan's about 10 miles north of the capital city of Samaria. It was, a little, it was the same little city where Joseph was sold as a slave when his brothers kidnapped him back in Genesis 37. And so here he is in Dothan, and here comes the Syrian army in full force because they want to silence this man of God. You know what? I feel like there's a lot of application what's going on in the world today. It's amazing that in our country that we always believed above all else, we had freedom of religion. There are people today that are making efforts to silence, silence what we say about the Lord. Amen. You make a stand for God, they'll kick you off social media. They make a stand for God uh, at work, you might lose your job. Uh, if you don't want to bake a cake for somebody in a gay marriage, they might shut down your business. And if you want to make a stand for the Lord, the enemy's coming after you. But here's what we need to remember. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, and God is in control. And I've read the end of the book, and God wins. Amen? 
And so we just need to remember that and not allow, not allow, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. Amen? Dogs bark, unbelievers act like unbelievers. And so we were all, that we're all sinners saved by grace. We should never be arrogant or self-righteous. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. And so they're going after him. And we're going to see in a moment, he's going out in full force. Look what happens. It says there in verse 14. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So Dothan is a very small little, like a village, more than a city. And they surround it with the entire army of Syria. They got it completely encamped around it. Now, keep in mind, a chariot back in those days was as great of a military weapon as you were going to get. It'd be like having a tank, you know, in World War I. Like, it was something that was unstoppable. Chariots, they would go through and just mow people down with them. They could mobilize. They could move quickly. It gave them a huge advantage. So they had all these horses surrounding and chariots surrounding Dothan. And they've got an army all mounted up and they're going after one guy. They're coming only for Elisha. You know, there's a time, no doubt, like the apostle Paul and others, where it would have been easy for them to say, you know, maybe if I dial it down a little bit, not so many people would be trying to kill me. But that never happens, does it? Everywhere Paul goes, he starts a revival or a riot because he's not afraid of death and he wants to live this life for the Lord. And he knows that, you know, our, our days are numbered by the Lord. We're indestructible until God's through with us. Amen. We're not going anywhere until God's done with us. And so they surround them. And guess what? Every time we go through a trial, God's going to teach us something. And in the midst of this trial, there's a guy that's there that's going to be taught a lot. Something that Elisha already knows. He's got a new second in command because Gehazi is off in the leper colony somewhere. By the way, it's amazing that if you read the text, I think he got to keep the money. How's that working out? <laughs> Take that silver with you and get down to the leper colony. You know, everybody in the leper colony would give anything to get out. He took money. Now he's in the leper colony. So here he's got a new second in command. It doesn't give us his name. Now watch what happens. It says, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And a servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? Oh no, what are we going to do? We're outnumbered. Lord, what are we going to, how, Lord, we don't know, we're, we're hopeless, we're helpless. Lord, I don't know what to do. I mean, I could picture the scene as the king of Samaria is frustrated that the king of Israel knows his plans ahead of time. He knows what he's thinking. And when he heard, man, he hears when I whisper, I got to get this guy. So he goes out in full force. He doesn't hold back one bit. And now when the servant of God sees it, he begins to panic. I detect a bit of panic in his voice when he says, what shall we do? Now this reminds me of the, of the apostles when the Lord told them when they're at the Sea of Galilee and he said, get in the boat, we're going over to the other side. Remember they're being pressed in on. He said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. And they all get in the boat and they're going toward the other side. And all of a sudden a huge storm kicks up. If you guys remember the story, you got fishermen panicking. You know that's a storm when fishermen panic, Amen. I've been out on, on, you know, when you have small craft advisories and everybody's on the boat throwing up deep sea fishing, the, the, the fishermen are eating all everybody's food. They're not sick one bit. 
They're over there chewing on it. His wife made the fried chicken. This is good. Everybody else is, wah, you know what I mean? Because they're just so used to, they're used to turbulent water. So if you can get fishermen panicking, you know it's a storm. And if you'll remember, they start to get upset with Jesus because the storm's kicking up and he doesn't seem too worried about it because he's sleeping. Amen? And they're like waking him up. Don't you care? But I love this because if they had taken their eyes off the waves and kept their eyes on Jesus, they wouldn't have been panicking. Amen? See, the reason we panic is we have our eyes on the circumstances of life and the difficult things in front of us instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus. Because he's never worried. He's never afraid. He never panics. And he's in control. Amen? So the next time when you're overwhelmed, take your eyes off what it is that's having you so concerned and worried and put your eyes on the Lord. He is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you right now. Amen? Here's what happens. This young man, what are we going to do? Dude, I just signed up to be your number two guy, man. I don't like this. I had no idea this was coming with the program. Dude, really? Uh, What did you do? Why are all these people here, right? I mean, he's overwhelmed. Like, what are we going to do? And he's panicking. This is why we need to make disciples. Amen. If If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you should be discipling somebody. Amen. And who's discipling you and who are you discipling right now? The Lord told us to make disciples. And what happens is when someone who's been walking with the Lord longer, and maybe it's been through more things than you have, and something happens, they say, look, I've been here before and I've seen God show up in a mighty way and I'm not worried about this. And what does that do? That helps prepare the, the younger person in their faith, helps them grow. Well, here's, here's a discipleship moment. Is Elisha going to panic? What do you think? What do you think? Watch. So good. So he answered, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, it's going to sound like to this young man, like, what are you smoking, bro? <laughs> you got an army in your back pocket somewhere I don't see? I mean, we, we don't have any chariots. I don't even know if they had a horse. <laughs> Dude, it's me and you. Have you seen the army out there, bro? They got, you know, they got tanks lined up all around and all the bullets are aimed right at us. They got howitzer guns. We're sitting here in a pup tent. What are you talking about? Right? I mean, overwhelmed. Like, what do you mean there's more people for us than against us? I, it, dude, it's me and you. This is overwhelming. What are you talking about? I love it. You know what it is, is that the Bible tells us in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. It says in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, this battle that we see in tonight's chapter isn't just unique for them. It's always true. See, the Bible tells us that we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness and high places. It is a spiritual battle that we fight. But here's the good news. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? And so we don't have to be afraid. We can trust in the power and the sovereignty of God. And so he says to him, oh, those, you know, those who are for us is, is nothing, you know, compared, it's more than those who are against us. Now watch this, verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. 
See, Elisha was a man who walked in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's a man that was being used mildly by God, and he had a spiritual perspective on life. And this young man who was growing, he was a, you know, a, a prophet in training, if you will, or may have just been his assistant, taking care of his physical needs, has no idea. He's never seen it before. And, and Elisha, because he's walking with the Lord, he's walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he has a, an eternal perspective. And so with his eternal perspective, he prays and says, Lord, can you show him? Lord, can you open his eyes and let him see? Now, I love this. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, were they there even before he knew they were there? What's the answer? Yes, Yes, they were. And even if he didn't believe they were there, would they still have been there? What's the answer? See, just because we don't have the faith or we we don't believe that something is there, your belief does not determine the truth. Amen. I remember there's a, a story that Charles Spurgeon tells in one of his sermons about this Irish guy that he gets in a car accident or an accident. I don't know if he's in a buggy or what, because it's like the 1900s. So he got in an accident and four different people saw what he did. So he had four different people witnessing against him that they saw it. You know what he did? He brought 40 people to court that say they didn't see it. <laughs> I didn't see it. I didn't see it. He thought he'd somehow win because he got 40 people saying they never saw it. The four people saw it gave a great detail. Dude went to prison, okay? But the reality is we face that when we say, look, I've seen the hand of God. I know that God is real. I have a relationship with him. And then you'll have people tell you, oh, God's not real. I believe in science. I believe in this. And you're, you know, it's a fairy tale. And you got the spaghetti monster in the sky and all, you know, all those things they like to say. And they don't believe it because they haven't seen it. And the reality is, bro, you don't need to see it for it to be real. Amen? You don't have to believe it for it to be real. And your feelings will lie to you, but our God is real. Our God is true. Our God is faithful. But he opens his eyes and he looks up. Do you think that young man ever forgot that? For the rest of his life. Do you think he had a little more faith after that moment? Do you think that he was, well, dude, let's do this. He went from, what are you talking about, dude? We're toast to, hey, let's fire them up. Let's go. <laughs> we, got, we got angels out there, bro. We got chariots on fire. I mean, their chariots are nothing compared to God's chariots. See, what the world has, what the enemy brings against us is nothing compared to what God has for us. Amen? Our God is greater. He's a faithful God, a loving God. If we keep our eyes on the Lord, we will be at peace knowing he is with us. No matter how big the waves or how great the army that may be coming against us. He tells them, do not fear. And again, we've talked about this a lot, that, the, that fear, anxiety, and worry are things that we all experience from time to time. Can I get an amen to that? Okay. Well, moments of fear, anxiety, or worry. But as believers, it should be momentary because... Fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. Why are they afraid? Because they're looking at the waves instead of looking at Jesus. Why was Elisha's second in command afraid? Because he was looking at the enemy instead of seeing the power of Almighty God. Amen? And see, it's when we take our eyes off the Lord, when we become faithless, and we begin to look only at what we can see in the physical, that we lose sight of the truth. You know, Elisha did not pray that God would change anything about the situation. He only requested, only request was that his servant could actually see what was happening. Let me say that one more time. 
when we're in a heavy duty situation, instead of praying and ask God to change it, here's a good prayer. God, show me what you're going to do in the midst of this. Amen. Amen. God, show me what you're going to do. God, I know you're faithful and I know you're in control. I know that no suffering is wasted. I know that you're on the throne. I know that you knew this was going to happen before the foundation of the world. So to sit, we always want to pray for God to change it. Get me out of this. Rescue me. I want out. Fix it. And sometimes God says, no, no, I'm not trying to fix it. I want to change you. Amen. I want to mold you. I want to do, I want to do a great work in your life. Because again, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And it's the testing of our faith that produces faith. It's those things, those trials that we go through that mold us more into the image of our Savior. So next time when you're in the midst of it, instead of just saying, Lord, fix it or change it, Lord, show me, teach me, help me grow through this. Can I get an amen to that? Now that's a hard prayer to pray, but it's exactly what the Lord wants us to do. Elisha didn't say, Hey, Lord, wipe all those dudes with chariots out so this guy will stop being afraid. Instead, he said, just show him, Lord. Just show him what's really going on all around us. I love it. We need to pray more often. Again, not to change the situation, but to open our eyes to the reality of the situation that God is greater and God is for us. I love that there's chariots of fire. Now, this will date you again. You know, there was a best picture I don't know when it was, probably back in like 1981 or something. It was called Chariots of Fire. Who's ever seen that? And it's about a guy who won't run on Sundays and he's in the Olympics and the movie's called Chariots of Fire. And this is where they get the term Chariots of Fire. It's from this verse right here. And again, uh, when a servant's eyes are opened, he sees as Elisha sees, the mountain was filled with chariots of fire. And it's interesting that Elijah was taken to heaven in what? chariot with a chariot of fire. Amen. God not only brought Elijah to heaven with one, and now he's protecting Elijah and his servant with an army filled of them. You know, Jacob had a dream in Genesis 28. He dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and it reached up to heaven. There were angels of God were ascending and descending. And after he woke, he was up, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. See, those angels were ascending and descending before he had the dream. And God's doing a work spiritually in your life, even when you don't know it. Can I get an amen to that? God is still at work. God does, you know, can God bring revival to the Caneo Valley? Amen. Can God do something in this state that so desperately needs Jesus? He can, and he's greater, and we need to trust him and don't get so caught up with the world around us that we lose sight of the fact that again, there's an army all around us. God is for us and the Lord, we are on the Lord's side and praise God for that. Faith is never imagining unreal things. It's getting grip of things that are real. The chariots of fire and the horses, uh, he saw them and then he believed. And they were there even when he did not know they were there. Pray for your eyes to be open, that you'll see things not just as they seem, that we'll trust that God is in control and he's faithful. I think the prayer 
is, is one of the keys to learning us to see things the way God does. Here's what Paul says in one of his prayers in Ephesians 1. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord God, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is exceedingly greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his mighty power. What he says there again, the eyes of understanding being enlightened, that you may know the hope of his calling. See, guys, we need to, Lord, give me your eyes today. Help me to see the world the way that you see it. Help me to love people the way that you love them. Give me divine appointments and opportunities today to minister to somebody. Lord, if somebody out there needs a hug, use my arms. If somebody out there needs a word of encouragement, Lord, use my lips. Pray for an opportunity to be used by the Lord, to be a tool in the hand of the master and to see the world the way that he wants us to see it. Open our eyes, Lord, I pray. So the Syrians, look at verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the words or the word of Elisha. So they're coming to attack. And we already know that there's chariots of fire that could have wiped them out. And he prays that they'll be struck with blindness and they're blinded. Now what's interesting about this is his number two guy was blind because he could not see spiritually. Amen? And then his eyes are opened. And then those who are coming against God's people, he strikes with blindness. See, God can remove the blindness from those who want to serve him and then give blindness to those who are coming against him. Amen? And that's exactly what happens right here. In the, aren't people today who don't know the Lord spiritually blind? Does it not blow your mind some of the things that people who don't know God say and believe with authority? There's 57 genders. Please stop. Can I get an amen? I just had the first person tell me in a sales call that they go by they. Oh, yeah, I'm not doing that, bro. I'm not doing they. I'm not doing they. It's a secretary. I go, no, I'm not doing they. I'm not doing it. I can leave you. Just insanity. It's crazy, amen? But we live in a world today that is so spiritually blind to the truth and is so caught up in whatever the latest thing that's being fed to them, a lot of it in college, they graduate a total mess and not knowing anything, amen? And that's why we know we need to know what we believe and why we believe it, amen? And to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and not be caught up. God can give both open eyes to increase our faith and blind those against us for our protection. I read a story a while back where you may have ever heard of a guy named Brother Andrew. This was many years ago. It was during World War II. And he had a ministry in the height, height of, even after that, in the Cold War, where he smuggled Bibles into communist countries. And he said it was amazing because it was really dangerous and people said not to do it. And he would be bringing Bibles in and they would find the hiding place and open it up. And right in front of them were 200 Bibles. They'd look right at them and they didn't know, and they, they didn't see them. And they'd throw the thing back up and push him through. And he, they're all looking at each other like, can God blind him for a moment? Can I get an amen? Can God do that supernatural? Do exceedingly bind him of all we ask or think? He, he cries out to blind this army and he blinds them. And notice what it says there. 
And watch this. It says, I, and then Elisha said to them, and he struck them with blindness according to the words of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, this is not your way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So they had come in. This is where God is in control. Point number four. They had come looking for Elisha. Now Elisha, they're blind and Elisha, they think they're leading, Elisha's leading them to Elisha. And he's taking them to Samaria to the headquarters of Israel. And here comes the entire army of Ben-Hadad and they're following behind him and they're, blind, they're, they're blinded, but they're not blind. They're blinded to fully understand what they're seeing, but they see well enough to follow Elisha. And he's gonna take them right into the fortress of the enemy without, without firing one shot. God is for us who can be against us. Our God is greater than any army, than any enemy, than anything the world has to offer. Our God is is greater still. So he tells them, follow me. That's not the way. Go this way. Verse 20. So it was when they came to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened them and they saw there they were inside Samaria. How did this happen? We were going that direction. And how did we end up here? How was the greatest army in the region that had these two men scared to death? Then they got to see that God's army was surrounding them and God didn't even use the army. He just blinded them and brought them into Samaria, into the hands of the king of Israel. King Jehoram is going to be blown away by this happening. Can you imagine you're, you know, he's up in the palace eating and he walks down and he sees the entire army of his enemy, you know, in his front yard, right? He's in there in the fort. He's got them all captured. They're right there. He can wipe them all out if he wants without leaving home. So there they are all in front of him. Now watch what happens. We're going to see the grace of God at work here. Look at verse 21. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? I think he wants to kill him. Can I get an amen? He says it twice. Now notice that he's finally catching on that I might want to listen to Elisha. Now this is the king of Israel who worships a false God, but he comes and says to Elisha, well, man, he's the one who brought him here. And obviously God's got his hand on him. And yeah, he did heal that guy. God healed that guy of leprosy using this guy. Maybe I should listen to what he said. So should we kill them? Now again, they're in a war and it would be just for them to do so, but watch what happens. But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you had taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the band of Syrians came no more into the land of Israel. Now he could have wiped them all out and they wouldn't have come back. But isn't it amazing? They went down to capture Elisha. They get blinded. They have dinner with Elisha. And then they all go home. And Ben-Hadad's like, okay, so what happened? Well, <laughs> we had him surrounded. Then we all went blind and we thought we were going to catch him, but it was actually him who led us. And then we were with the king. We had dinner with him. <laughs> and then we came home. Only God can do that. Can I get amen? It doesn't matter how great the military is. We have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on our side. Amen? God is for us who can be against us. And what grace Elisha shows them, right? They were coming to kill him. They came looking for him. And what does he do? 
by the grace of God. He shows them grace. The Bible tells us we don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. Amen? The Bible even tells us that we can, it's like pouring hot coals upon them, right? When you show them favor, when they're seeking to attack you. It says in Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you shall heap hot coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Elisha is being faithful to the heart and the command of God. Notice it says they came no more. This is going to be a little confusing because of the next verse, okay? But here's what happens. It says the raiders of the Syrians, like their, their, their guys that go out and raid villages, didn't come back. But guess what? Someone else is going to come back because the king of Syria has a very, very short memory. And watch what happens. The last couple points here. So we see even, even over our enemies, God has a control. Don't overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. You know, pray for those who spitefully use you and misuse you. Pray for the coworker who's difficult. Pray for the person in your family that's hard to get along with. Pray for them because you know what? They just need the grace of God poured out on them. Amen. They need to soften their heart. They need someone to love them unconditionally and may they see Jesus in us. Final two points. It happened after this, verse 24. The Benadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up to, and besieged Samaria. So much for leaving them alone. Next verse, they're right back down there. Now, here's what it means to be besieged. Here's what they do. They surround the city, and they let no one in and no one out. And what they basically do, they play the long game. If you can't get any food in, eventually you're all going to starve. You can't send anything out. You lost your trade. You can't, there's no way to create income. So what happens is they just surround the city. They, that's what the word besiege means. They surround it and they keep anything from getting in and anything from getting out. And now you have all the people in the capital of Israel and they're going to slowly begin to starve to death because the enemy is blocking them from having anything brought in to the city. I thought about this. And I don't think it's a big stretch. I think Satan wants to besiege the church. Can I get amen to that? He wants to keep anybody from coming in and any of us from going out and sharing our faith. Amen? And again, we are called by God. You know how most people come to church? Someone invites them. I ask people all the time when someone's new, there's two, the two main ways people come. Someone invites them or they hear us on the radio. Those are the two big ways people come. And so look, people are, there are people that will go to church if someone will invite them. And we should be the ones who are daily saying, Lord, show me somebody who needs to hear about Jesus. Just invite them to church. And if they won't come to church, invite them to lunch and love on them in Jesus' name. Now watch how, th how bad things get. See, they surround it, and now the famine comes. Now we're going to see how bad the famine was. Look at verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shillings of silver. How hungry do you have to be to be buying dove droppings? The head of a, a donkey, that was an unclean animal they didn't usually touch. I looked at it in today's terms. 80 shekels is roughly $10,240 for a donkey's head. So people are so hungry that only the rich could buy things that most people wouldn't even want to eat. Five shekels is about the labor, uh, the monthly wages for a laborer in those days. 
And that's what it costs for a handful of dove droppings. But you got to be hungry. I'm thinking heaven's better. (laughs) I get an amen to that. I'll let the dove droppings go by. And I can just die quicker and be in the presence of my Savior. Amen. I think I'll let that go right by. All the food was gone. Hunger was great. But you know what? These people too, keep in mind, they hadn't been walking with the Lord. See, a vast majority of them had began worshiping the false gods of this world. And because of that, they were, they were holding on to their lives. See, the people that don't know God and don't know about eternity and don't know about heaven, they have a different perspective on this life. Now, all of us, I get it. Um, we have something in us that we want to stay here as long as possible to minister to people. And I agree with that. But you know what? As Christians, the Bible tells us that death has no sting. You know, absent from the body, present with the Lord just doesn't get any better. Heaven's better. Amen. So I, yeah, last time I went grocery shopping, I didn't see any donkey's heads. And if there were any, I ain't buying one. Amen. <laughs> so look at verse 26. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out saying, help my Lord, O king. Now look, do you think he might be getting that request a little bit right about now? Because everybody is starving. And they're just scraping up the last of what's left. And this woman cries out to the king for help. Now, I, I love his response because I'm not really sure he's saying it with the right heart. But watch what he says. He says here, the king said to her, what is troubling you? Now, he's going to say in a minute, if the Lord can't help you, nobody can. Now, watch this. Now, this is, this is a little, he's going to turn your stomach a little bit because watch this. This is kind of hard to even read. What's troubling you? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and then we will eat my son tomorrow. Now, how hungry do you have to be to start eating your children? More importantly, how depraved do you have to be to be eating your children? Can I get an amen to that? There is nothing and no way and no how ever under any circumstance that anybody that knows the Lord would go anywhere near this. Can I get an amen to that? There is no way. Every one of us would die for our children. Can I get an amen to that? Run through, if the car's on fire, we'll jump into the fire to get them out. Amen? We will do anything. We'll die for our kids. We will suffer for our kids. We'll go the extra mile. You know, when I had my daughter, I was already a hardworking guy. And when my daughter was born, I worked 10 times harder than I was already working. Can I get an amen to that, guys? It motivates you, right? And they're so depraved that they're so concerned about their own survival that they're willing to eat their children. I just, I, I just nauseating to think about it. To me, it's, it's demonic, amen? Verse 29, and so we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give me your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. No, duh. <laughs> Amen. So this is what the, the king of Israel is being told. Do we see the, the depths of depravity in Israel? See, here's what happens. The further we get away from God, the less and less things that we just won't do. Amen. You get to the point where nothing is beyond 
doing. Nothing is beyond what you'll entertain and might even get involved with. See, when you're close to the Lord and you're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he convicts you when you get even a step out of where you need to be. He draws you back because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. But see, they've been worshiping false idols and they have not been going to the temple anymore. They've not been making sacrifices anymore. They're not honoring God anymore. And now what happens is they, you know, they, it's the slow fade. Amen. You get further and further and further away from the Lord. And before you know it, you're so far away from God, you wouldn't even know that you had never had anything to do with him. Amen? This is depravity beyond anything I've ever even heard of. How bad was the famine? How hungry were the people? So hungry that mothers were eating their own children. And how did Israel get into such a horrible place? Let me tell you how, their own rebellion. You know why they're starving? Because of their rebellion. You know why they're doing depraved things? Because they rebelled against God. Because they no longer walk in the fullness of the Lord. Because they don't have a relationship with God anymore. They don't worship the true and living God anymore. They worship their own bellies. They worship their own flesh. They worship the false gods of this world. They have hardened their hearts toward God. How depraved must you be to become a cannibal and have your children be the ones that you begin with. It says in Deuteronomy, look at the prophecy here. See, this is why when people tell you that the Bible, you know, I don't believe in the Bible, and you always ask them and they've never read it. But Deuteronomy 28, watch this. This was written by Moses years before. God warns Israel of the judgment that will come if they are not faithful to the covenant. That's the promise between them and God. He made with them. Part of the chapter describes the horrors fulfilled in the chapter. They shall besiege you. Here's what it says. Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 and 53. They shall besiege you at your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you at the gates throughout all your land with the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons, and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. That was written hundreds of years earlier and they're doing exactly what the word of God said they would do if they broke the covenant with God. See, they're in this mess because they've walked away from God. And when you walk away from God, you should not be surprised when your life is a mess. Can I get an amen to that? Because when we walk away from God and we're doing things our own way, the Lord loves us enough to bring the discipline we need and the difficulty we need to come back. Now watch, verse 30. Now what happened when the king heard the words of the women that he tore his clothes and he passed by on the wall, the people looked and underneath he had sackcloth on his body. This is so depraved that even the king who's an idol worshiper just starts to mourn. He was already wearing sackcloth under his clothes. That's what they would do when they would mourn. He was tearing his clothes and renting them because how depraved must the people that he you know, rules over be that they're eating their own children. The king of Israel is heartbroken and grieving. And one thing he won't do, sadly, he's heartbroken and he's grieving, but he's not repenting. Amen? See, it's not enough to say, I'm sorry, and I feel bad about what I'm doing. That's a beginning point. But when you feel bad, you must turn to repentance. Doesn't just say, mean, I'm sorry and keep walking in that direction. It means to turn around, to change your mind and to surrender your life to the Lord. See, we're going to find out next chapter that they could be out of the famine in a matter of hours because God can do that. Amen. But all he needs to do is turn to the Lord. And instead he continues to go deeper and deeper in his rebellion. In fact, he's going to blame 
the Lord's prophet again. Look at verse 31. He'd already tried to get him. Now, now it's the king of Israel. See, it's, it's not just the king of Syria. Now it's the king of Israel. Verse 31, he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. All Elisha does is do what God's called him to do and all people want to do is kill him. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world persecutes us. Amen. I will say this. I don't think we really know what persecution is in this country. Amen. Anybody been thrown in prison for their faith yet? I thought it could happen during COVID. I thought it'd be great for prison ministry. It would have been great. But that didn't happen. Amen. And we do have, you know, in small ways. But Jehoram is angry and bitter, not with himself, not with the people, but with the prophet of God. It's so like human nature again, to walk in open sin and rebellion, reject God's word and his commands, serve your own fleshly desires. And when the consequences come, don't repent or take responsibility for your actions, but blame the person that brought it out into the light. How dare you bring it out into the light? How dare you say that marriage is between one man and one woman? How dare you do that? You're a homophobe. Amen? People don't repent. They just call you names because you make a stand for the truth. When you make a stand that adultery is wrong, fornication is wrong, abortion is murder. Amen? And when you make a stand for those things, then the world just throws it back at you. Well, it's my body, my choice. Well, it's the body inside your body I'm worried about, not yours. Can I get an amen? And God placed the baby in your womb. But here's what happens. The more depraved we get, the more we get angry at the person who's pointing out the sin instead of repenting from it. And that's exactly what happens here. Let's finish. But Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, this is... uh, Elisha, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? I mean, again, getting, trying to get stuff over on Elisha does not work. <laughs> this guy hangs out with the Lord. God speaks to him and through him, amen? They're sitting in his house. Do you see that dude coming? He's coming. You probably can't see him. He'll be here in a minute. He's coming, and he wants to kill me. Can you believe this? And he, he, calls, and he calls Jehoram the son of a murderer, because Ahab is his dad, and Jezebel is, is one who had killed many of the prophets. You guys remember that? She also had, you know, different people put to death because they're making a stand for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's the one that brought Baal worship. And he literally says, Jehoram, that son of a murderer, Ahab and, and Jezebel. And then notice what he says. Do you see the son of a murderer sent someone? Look, when the messengers come, shut the door, hold it fast, hold, hold fast at the door, it is it's not a sound of the master's feet behind him. So he sent a messenger, hold the door shut, and guess who's right behind him? The king. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now we find out who he's really blaming. He's blaming the Lord. He's blaming the Lord for their calamity with their enemies. He's blaming the Lord for the famine. He's blaming the Lord for all the consequences of his own sinful behavior. And and, uh, when we get to chapter seven, we're gonna see how God moves in the midst of that. So God is watching. God shows up in powerful ways as we faithfully serve him. The guy was faithfully serving the Lord. He's using a borrowed ax 
And God allowed, again, in the midst of that, that little trial that he had to bring about something that caused him to glorify God and to recognize the power of God. God is always watching. Nothing is hidden from him. May we live every day in light of that. The angel of the Lord encounters around all those who fear him and he delivers them. Just remember that, that the enemy, we know it's a spiritual battle, but the, the army that surrounds us is greater than the army coming against us. God is in control even over our enemies. When we turn our, turn our backs on God, no level of depravity is beyond us. Before you know it, people are having cannibalism with their own children. And when confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. Make excuses, accuse others, or repent. We know exactly what Jehoram did. He made excuses and accused others by accusing Elisha instead of repenting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just these applications that are so clear to our own lives. Oh, Lord, we know that we all struggle day by day with our, our flesh. It's a battle that we fight every day. But Lord, we want to walk in the center of your will. And we know that surrendering fully to you is a, is a daily thing, Lord. We have to come humbly and broken and ask you, Lord, to fill us again with your Holy Spirit. It's not because we do better, but because, Lord, we really we surrender more. Less of us and more of you. That's our prayer tonight, Lord. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen.